Well, our topic this evening is At the Crossroads, uh, the title of the conference, Cross Training. We want to be trained by the cross. The cross, the healthcare crisis, and power for lasting change. So uh, quickly, our outline, our, our goals for this, our objectives for this lecture. You get CME credit for this, by the way. So uh, hopefully you'll learn something applicable in your medical practice or dental practice. I outline the current challenge in obtaining lasting healthy behavioral change, discuss the recognition of this crying need by healthcare funding agencies, and explore how Dr. Luke's view of the cross can impact motivation and identity for long-term lasting change. So here's the objectives that we have. You know, there are many websites that point out what the problems are. Here's one aptly named healthcareproblems.org. Uh, and the information that follows in the next four slides is, is collated on this website from other, I think, reliable sources. So let's just touch on a few data points so we can grasp the magnitude of the uphill problem we face on the road to better health for our patients. The United States is fast becoming one of the worst healthcare systems in the world. We're the only industrialized nation that does not provide some, over, some form of universal health care to its citizens. One of the highest rates for healthcare expenditures. Now, we're trying to remedy that, but um, not always easy. None of that's news for you, I'm sure. Well, healthcare expenditures, um, highest of any developed country, um, not spending the money efficiently, prescription prices still under patent protection, uh, 35 to 55% higher. One of the biggest and most costly aspects of healthcare is the treatment of chronic disease. It's hard to make insurable, insurance affordable without changing how chronic disease is treated. 75% of total healthcare spending in the United States in 2007 went toward the treatment of chronic disease. 75%, that's a lot of money. Approximately half of all chronic diseases are linked to preventable problems, including smoking, obesity, physical activity, physical inactivity. Numerous studies have shown that when patients with chronic diseases focus on their health and get involved in their own care, their health improves and health expenses decrease. As I often tell my patients, I believe that no health care plan, be it Obamacare or whatever the next president's care or uh, no health care plan can solve our unsustainable trajectory unless it addresses the underlying causes of disease at the level of individual responsibility. So the problem is clear, right? Unfortunately, for those who wrestle with such things, the solution is not so clear. So, so much for the magnitude of the challenge we face. Now, let's go to our second objective. Is there national recognition of the need for new creative approaches in healthcare? The National Institutes of Health and the Department of Health and Human Services, that's the alphabet soup up there, they're suggesting a roadmap of sorts um, where we might choose to explore uh, some other options. We know that the Bible validates true science. Uh, Dr. Nedley, who you heard from earlier, has aptly called our attention in previous lectures that he's given to the data showing the need for comprehensive self-control. So you look at the title of this funding opportunity, 
translating basic behavioral and social science discoveries into interventions to improve health-related behaviors. You can kind of read between the lines what they're looking for, right? Here are some of the thoughts and where they are willing to invest their tax dollars and mine. Behaviors such as smoking, sedentary lifestyles, unhealthy dietary intake, alcohol, or substance abuse or dependence, and poor adherence to medical and behavioral treatments are major contributors to cardiovascular disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, and other chronic conditions. For example, combination of excess energy intake and lack of physical activity, read metabolic syndrome, right? in the U.S. population over the past several decades has produced a rapid rise in obesity that threatens to re reverse recent gains in life expectancy. All of these behaviors need to change, right? And personal comprehensive self-control is probably the biggest bang for the research buck if you can buy it. At last estimate, 40% of premature deaths can be attributed to preventable behavioral factors and therefore they quote this Arthur Schroeder in 2007, the single greatest opportunity to improve health and reduce premature deaths lies in personal behavior. Can you buy personal behavior? So far, it seems we're unable to get the behavioral changes we're after. Studies such as the trials of hypertension, prevention, weight loss, maintenance, and the diabetes prevention program have shown that behavioral interventions can improve behavior and prevent disease. So that's the good news. However, even the most successful behavior change interventions are limited in their ability to induce significant long-term behavioral changes in the majority of adults. Often, change occurs only for the highly motivated and is limited to a, a single health behavior rather than multiple behaviors. Furthermore, even individuals committed to behavioral change find it hard to maintain healthy behavioral patterns over time. For example, most smoking studies show a pattern of relapse and cessation that may continue for years. Any chapter in the Bible come to mind? Romans 7? Exceptions to this pattern have been found in preventive interventions such as the nurse home visitation program that have shown lasting and long-term effects. In addition, some prevention research suggests that the greatest gains can be made with those at most risk, but even the successes are not as common as they should be. And this points to the need for innovative, high-quality behavioral research, which is needed in both the prevention and intervention areas. So this is the NIH wanting to throw money at research projects that will induce long-term change. So we need innovative, high-quality research. There's money behind this assessment. So they go on to say, uh, we use the analogy of drugs, surgical techniques, medical devices. We need to also develop more powerful health-related behavioral interventions. Yeah, but these are dependent on our understanding of human behavior and then translating that knowledge into new and more effective interventions with enduring effects. So then they go on to give some suggestions as to where areas of research that might be considered. Following intended only as, only as conceptual examples of the types of topics and approaches relevant to the proposed FOA. And FOA stands for Funding Opportunity Announcement. They make an announcement. Here's where we can throw some money if you're willing to convince us that you could spend it wisely in your research. Translate basic research on learning, cognition, information, processing, etc. To do what? 
encourage adherence to self-monitoring goal setting, other behavioral strategies. Neuroimaging studies, find out what's actually going on in the brain physiologically. Develop novel approaches to change behaviors based on that. Make use of system science and modeling techniques, network analysis, etc. Constructing system-level interventions. Now, if you read between the lines here, what are they looking for? What's the general thrust? Brain-level research, encouraging adherence, systems-level, dare we say, whole person? Yeah, the whole person system is what they're looking at, interventions. They want us to translate uh, laboratory or observational studies into new avenues for intervention or prevention by developing interventions that target executive functioning and behavioral control, emotional and behavioral self-regulation. Well, what's executive function, Dr. Nedley? That's the frontal lobe. What is self-regulation? That's comprehensive self-control, right? Uh, they're also looking for New paradigms of science. Now, the paradigms they suggest, I don't know, chaos theory, nonlinear models. Well, I think we might have a nonlinear model. We'll talk about that in a bit. To address the unpredictability of behavior, to construct interventions that foster motivation for behavioral change and strategies that maximize chances for nonlinear, non-rational change. And they give the idea of tipping points. Anybody read Tipping Point? An interesting read. So nonlinear, non-rational change, that sounds something like something almost miraculous or a, singular, a singularity of, of life, right? Where things will change, motivation changes. So the harmful things, uh, diet, alcohol, substance consumption, developmental exposures, all of these things can affect the epigenetic regulation of the genetic blueprint. So they, they were looking for basic research on epigenetic processes to develop interventions that change behavior and affect gene activity, perhaps from what? Generation to generation. Use research concerning genetic predispositions to, be, to behavior to develop novel approaches of intervention or to enhance existing approaches. So epigenetics, that's a practical application of the health message for proper DNA function, transcription, modulation, and to affect the best executive function frontal lobe function possible for long-term behavioral change and motivation. To use these findings from behavioral economics and neuroeconomics to develop more potent forms, frequency, and duration of reinforcements for encouraging and discouraging behavior. So you can use money, you can use peer pressure, different things. Use findings on impulsivity, emotional dysregulation, delay discounting, risk-taking behavior for better design interventions that prevent cravings, promote delayed gratification, and improve individuals' abilities to cope with stimuli eliciting unhealthy behavior. Some type of reward-based reinforcement. We might ask, what is the ultimate reward? The second paragraph here, the last paragraph, and sounding like they're asking for a solution. They want a solution to the Battle of Romans 7, a long-lasting solution. Well, let's look at some research up this alley. This paper by Oyserman and others focuses on social identity and health. Here's what they say. People do not always take action to promote health, engaging instead in unhealthy habits, reporting fatalism about health. Can't help myself. One important mechanism underlying these patterns involves identity-based motivation the process by which content of social identities influences beliefs about in-group goals and strategies. So what's, 
Who do I identify with? What are they doing? That's what I do. If Americans are to move beyond wishing for health, our studies suggest that it is important for social identities to change from including unhealthy lifestyle behaviors as in-group defining. If health disparities are to be reduced, all Americans must view healthy behaviors as in-group defining. Well, that's a pretty lofty goal, isn't it? Everybody to view, I'm an American, therefore I live a healthy lifestyle. Which identities matter? So if you're gonna have an identity which is in-group defining, what identities really work? According to their research, some identities are more likely to be situationally cued than others. So a broader identity, for example, female, is more likely to be cued than a narrower one, like I'm a professor. Gender and race ethnicity are both broad and also often psychological, psychologically salient. That is, they, they're important for thought process. Gender and race ethnicity. In addition to gender and race ethnicity, other identities are cued when they are meaningfully distinctive in context. Okay, this principle may be the key at the beginning there. Broader identities are the most effective. Think of this in the context of the gospel. The broadest, most meaningfully distinctive identity possible will be the most effective for lasting change. They go on to say uh, in this um, other article, identity-based motivation is a theoretical model that focuses attention on the motivational pull toward identity congruent action, identity congruent cognitive procedures, builds on prior theories. So they're, working, they're looking at this from a behavioral, sociological standpoint. But look at what they're saying. It moves beyond purely cognitive models, how are people thinking, by integrating the perspective with modern and goal theories which propose that once inst uh, instantiated, goals can be situationally cued outside of conscious awareness and without systemic processing. So when you have a healthy behavior and you want to keep it going, you don't want to have to constantly be thinking about it, right? You want to have it become automatic. This is what I do. This is who I am. This is just how I react. This is how I eat. This is how I exercise. This is how I drink water. So these modern social researchers are interested in exploring this theory of identity-based motivation. You know, cognition has to do with the head, outside conscious awareness, we might say that has to do with the heart. Hmm. They want to see something that connects the heart and the head in ways that end up in practical long-term success. From an identity-based motivation perspective, both personal and social identities matter. Specifically, the identity-based motivation model expands oper oper sorry, operationalization of identities from two components to three. Uh, based in memberships and beliefs, expand to action readiness and procedure readiness. That is. It's not just who I am, what I believe, it's not what I belong to, it's how does that impact my life? How does that actually affect change in my life? Do we see some of these concepts laid out in scripture? How about these? I delight to do your will, O oh my God, and your law is within my heart. Psalm 40, verse 8. Or this one. And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God hath said. I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Talk about motivation. Talk about a heart change with automatic good behavior. If God is in you, Christ is in you, and he's walking, he's behaving, how's that for identity management? And a new identity. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
Can you do any better than a new creation? Here's a quote from one of our favorite authors, I think. Sin can triumph only by enslaving the mind. Christ came to our world to break the power of Satan and emancipate the will of man. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives and to undo the heavy burdens and to let the oppressed go free. Some of that at least is Isaiah 58 language. And he calls upon us to cooperate with him by entering his service, wearing his yoke, lifting his burdens. And if we consent, he will do what? He can and will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity with his will, that when obeying him, we shall but be carrying out what? Our own impulses. The will, refined and sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing his service. Signs of the Times, November 19, 1896. Well, back to our researchers. Identity matters because it influences what actions people take and how they make sense of the world. So depending on how it's constructed, it could be helpful or harmful, but identity really matters for good or for ill. It really is true. And as Christians, we should know this text really well. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. So let's explore our third objective for this lecture in the time we have left. Identity-based motivation in the context of medical missionary work with the help of Dr. Luke. First, we might take a look again at our marching orders as Adventists or our identity as Adventists found in the Three Angels' Messages. In a sense, the Three Angels' Messages are a template for success in the powerful identity-based motivation change that we and our patients all need. Here is the patient endurance, something long-lasting. Here's the faith of Jesus. Someone believes in me that I can change, and I believe that I can change. The honoring of the Creator God who created me and so can recreate me and has the power to have me fit into His creation in a way that will honor Him. And a worship of the one who gave his only son so that all might be saved if they will, pulling them out of Babylon, of the confusion that the lie represents. Paralleling the aspects of the three angels' messages we just reviewed, we can find that in Dr. Luke's narrative surrounding the cross, there are details unique to his narrative that may outline some of the keys to identity-based motivation in terms of the cross. First of all, uh, the story, and we'll go over these in more detail, but the story of Peter and the faith of Jesus toward Peter. Secondly, in the attitude of forgiveness for sins of ignorance. Thirdly, in the closeness, the nearness of salvation, the readiness of salvation for any and all at any stage in their life. And lastly, the transformative teaching that comes through the word where a whole paradigm shift can happen in a short time when people are led to see Christ for who he is in the word. So I've outlined this as uh, 
you see the acronym. People like acronyms in the medical field, at least. I don't know about dentists, but when you're trying to learn something in medical school, it's easier to learn it if you have something to hang it on to. So think of it this way. We're all subject. We've all been subject to the trauma of sin. How many traumatologists do we have here familiar with the FAST exam in trauma? Right? Focused, abdominal, sonographic, right? What does the T stand for, Eric? What? Test, yes, good. So fast treatment or fast evaluation. All of these center on the cross of Christ and his love revealed around this sacrifice for all humanity. So first, uh, to this story. And this story is found only in the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Now, Jesus knew some things about Peter that Peter didn't know about himself. But he still had faith in Peter. And he still uh, told Peter that Peter would succeed. The first key to identity-based management is having a new identity ready for us to take. Peter didn't know he needed a new identity, but Jesus had one for him. No matter that Peter was blind to the transformation that he needed, he had someone who believed that he could and would change, be recreated into the new man through the cross of Christ. The faith that Jesus expressed for Peter's future was key in the transformation the cross brought to Peter. Luke is the only gospel writer also who records in verse 61 of the same chapter, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. In that look of Jesus was love and compassion for Peter, no condemnation. It was the nonverbal communication. I still have faith in you, Peter. Remember, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Well, how, do, how does God look at you? How does he look at me in Christ? How a doctor, a dentist, a pastor, how any of us looks at those who are failing is so important. It's because God has faith in us, creative faith. We can also exercise faith in those to whom we minister as we speak his word to them. Faith awakens faith. Look at this statement from Lift Him Up, page 221, talking about the faith of Jesus. Through faith, everyone can, if he will, become one with Christ in his obedience and his service. One in identity. Each word, each action is a work for God. Here is faith in God and faith in men. And here's the source of this faith. Christ would never have given his life for the human race if he had not faith in the souls for whom he died. He knew that a large number would respond to the love he had expressed for humanity. So love is the motivation. Love is the power. Faith is the expression. And that creative faith speaks to us in the cross and to all those to whom we minister that things can change for them. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. This is how we see it. That if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all. That those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, 
From now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 16, talking about the identity change that the gospel brings. When we see the cross for what it is, Christ died the death of all men, all died in him. When we grasp something of the dimensions of the gospel, of what God has already done for everyone by uniting his son and identifying so closely, completely with our humanity, we see God, we see ourselves, we see others in an entirely new way. Not in the flesh, what's in this for me, what can I get out of you? But I see good things here for you, and you, and you. I see a new you. The third angel's message is the proclamation of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. The commandments of God have been proclaimed, but the faith of Jesus Christ has not been proclaimed by Seventh-day Adventists as of equal importance. The law and the gospel going hand in hand, I cannot find language to express this subject in its fullness. You see the parallel between the research on the mind and the heart, faith of Jesus and the law, law and the gospel. Yes, the law points us to Christ, but Christ is the one with the faith in us, with the power for us to change. If we had proclaimed this message, the faith of Jesus, as equally important, that is motivation, as equally important with the commandments or the behavior as we should have, the healthcare crisis might not exist as it does today. We are told that Christ would have come ere this if we had been about our business properly. And I firmly believe that as we look to expand the medical missionary work to what it should be, this is the direction we must take. But that takes a certain attitude, also noticed very thoughtfully, I believe, by Dr. Luke, the attitude of forgiveness. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Again, Luke is the only gospel writer that records Jesus saying this. It's a prayer. So we know Jesus' attitude. Jesus was the sin bearer. He was identifying so closely with us that he gave himself to bear the consequences of sin in our fallen humanity in order to create in himself the new identity we need putting to death the old man, creating the new, removing the enmity. Like he did for Israel in calling for our repentance, in some sense, he blotted out like a thick cloud our transgressions by bearing them himself. And like a cloud, your sins return to me for I've redeemed you. So here in Isaiah, he's saying, I've blotted out your sins, now come back. That's quite an attitude. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This attitude that God reveals in Christ beckons for our response in taking his identity as our own. This is the broadest identity possible, and thus the most powerful for identity-based motivation. It is an attitude, a heart motivation that comes from God the Father, who was in Christ, not imputing our sins against us. Before we repented, he was doing that. 
at the cross, God reveals his true identity, his true character in Christ, who was the second Adam. And we're counseled in Ephesians 4.24 that we put on the new man, right? Created in Christ Jesus. So we have the faith of Jesus. We have an attitude of forgiveness as part of Dr. Luke's, Luke's prescription. Now on to salvation, the S in our acronym. This is the story of the thief on the cross. Now other gospel writers record, Matthew and Mark record that both thieves initially reviled Jesus, so they note that there were two thieves, but they don't tell us the rest of the story. Luke records that one of these thieves came to his senses based on what he was seeing in Christ. Remember, this was a convicted criminal at the very end of his death row experience. It would seem that there's no hope for somebody so far gone. But as soon as the request came, there was an immediate response. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, he replied immediately, assuredly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Sorry, I didn't move the comma. Verse 46 also records um, Jesus, I think, further witness to this man. Because the thief died before or after Jesus? After. What were Jesus' last words? Father, into thy hand, I commit my spirit. My identity is yours. So even in death, Jesus was able to increase the faith, I believe, of that thief. All that God has ever really wanted for us is for us to experience, to agree to take into our own lives the reconciliation he already accomplished for us in Christ. On the cross, Christ was the gospel. He was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. By his stripes we are healed. Salvation, the soteria, from which we get soteriology, is that right? Or saving act of God appears to all men, as we are told in 2 Timothy 2.11. He took our identity so that we might have his. Anyone at any time can have a new identity. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as medical missionaries. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Take your new identity-based motivation and run with it. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The dying thief, the dying cancer patient, the dying lifestyle wreck of a diabetic. Anyone cannot just have a new identity, but be a new creation. Anyone who believes the divine mandate that we all died the death to the old man in him, in Christ, has the right to experience the practical outworking of his life. Where there is life, there is hope. We should share this motivating, encouraging truth in all of our outreach to everyone, especially in our medical missionary work. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's the word of God. Do you believe it? Then we should be able to tell our patients that we believe it for them. Finally, 
transformative teaching, or T. This is an interesting story on the road to Emmaus. It's actually a fairly long story, and you could probably have two or three sermons out of the things that are shared there. But look at the, just these few points in terms of how Christ was teaching after the cross, how he applied the principle of the cross in his teaching. So it was while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? Luke 24, 15 and 17. In the story of the road to Emmaus, Luke, Dr. Luke, is telling us, I think in this story, that we all have a savior near at hand, walking with us, even when we don't see how close he is or recognize him for who he is, who is eager to reveal the answers to our deepest questions, to provide healing for our emotional and physical ills, and to be himself the answer to our heart's desire. So I think the, the application is obvious. If this is how God is toward us, how do we present this to our patients? We can show them how close God already is to them, how he's been walking with them. And then we can ask appropriate leading questions. What's the conversation that you're having? What are your questions? What's, what's bothering you? What's going on in your life? Transformative teaching. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 25 to 27. So we have things we can point to to help people understand what's going on. Why is there suffering? Why are they suffering? Um, we can point to the truth of who God is versus the lie. That is, these principles of giving versus taking, selfishness versus self-sacrificing love, and how these apply in health. To give is to live. It's true of calories, right? We can show how Christ's suffering helps explain and minister to theirs, freeing them from destructive patterns of thought and thus of behavior. And here I want to place a plug, if I might, for a book I just read, an e-book. You can download it. And um, Neil's familiar with this. It's titled The Hidden Half of the Gospel by author Paul Conneff, C-O-N-E-F-F. The Hidden Half of the Gospel. I'd encourage you to read that. Because in this book, the author is specifically breaking down for people who are suffering long-term behavioral maladies based on things they've suffered. And doing it in such a way, pointing them to Christ and his suffering, identifying with them in their suffering. Having suffered so that he can relieve them from their suffering. That it really frees them from the addictions and the damaging behaviors that they have. The hidden half of the gospel. So Christ in all the scripture, another important principle in transformative teaching, 
show how he's close at hand. He's a savior near at hand. He's walking with them already. And he's found all through the scripture. And lastly, with transformative teaching, we read this. They constrained him. Recall he was going to go on, right? He acted like he would go on. They, they constrained him, saying, Abide with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. Now it came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, that he took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us while he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? Luke 24, 29 to 32. Do you see what's happened here? They didn't recognize Christ for who he was. But then as they looked at the word and the word was open to them and Christ was revealed in the word, through the word, their hearts were burning. They didn't know quite why. But when they invited him in to eat with them, and he personally opened the scriptures to them, then they had a paradigm shift. They had a new identity. They had the new identity that Christ was after for them. And isn't this the way it should be with us? We should encourage the people with whom we interact, to whom we minister, to we want to invite them to have Christ enter into their own personal experience to explain the word to them, to show them in their experience how he was there with them all the way. Revelation 3.20, you can quote it, right? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice, I will come in with him and sup with him and he with me. The word has transformative power to light a fire for heart change. Not for an inflamed heart, but for a heart that's motivated, has lots of energy, lots of ATP. For lasting identity-based motivation. To review the acronym once again, for Dr. Luke's prescription, we are at the crossroads, not only in healthcare, but in this world's history and it is time, we might say it's high time, to make a fast turn in the right direction. Christ is drawing all to himself. Will we accept his tug on our hearts so that we can effectively point others to the power of his death and of his life? In closing, I'll offer a amen paraphrase of Isaiah 58, verses 6 to 8, to uh, stimulate your thinking. I have chosen you to fast in this way. You are to show those to whom you minister how I have believed in them, loved them, had faith in them, how I became one with them, suffering and dying their death, to free humanity from evil and oppressive habits, removing the burdens of harbored guilt and resentment that make healthy, fulfilled living impossible. 
You are to welcome the rejected, failed people of the world into your churches and clinics, to share with them my personal presence as the bread which came down from heaven, which you yourself have eaten and by which you have been sustained. You are to recognize in them your own miserable wretchedness, blindness, poverty, and nakedness. And through your ministry to share to them, share how you yourself have been and continue to be transformed as you are covered with my very own robe of righteousness. When you preach the gospel in this very practical way, you will find that your prayers for the latter rain and the healing that is promised in humble intercession for others find an answer in my righteousness. In my personal presence ahead of you, behind you, and working in and through you. You will no longer be judgmental of others nor critical of their motives or intelligence as you get out of your own self-interest to bless others. You will see how my love for you and for them revealed in and through the cross has created a new restored identity for man, brightening your future and theirs, providing powerful motivation for living a truly fulfilling life. Are you feeling the drawing power of the cross in your life? Would you like to see that power unleashed for your patients, your family, your friends? At this, our 11th conference, Cross Training, it is my prayer for you, for myself, for Amen, for the church at large, for the world, that we will experience in the cross the true fast of Isaiah 58, and that Christ himself will dwell in us through his spirit, working his will for his glory. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we We don't deserve all that you've poured out for us. We're thankful for Jesus coming to be one with humanity, one with, with our humanity, to rescue us from the false identity that Adam has provided through epigenetics, genetics. We thank you for the new man that we have in Christ. And we believe your word. May it be true in us, and may we be able to share it with others effectively through your Spirit. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.